Good morning and welcome to Friday morning, November the 4th in 2022 on When I Rise. Today we come to the end of year C, proper week 27, which is the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost. And on the Friday of the week, we'd like to take a look at the gospel passage, which comes to us from this week from the Revised Common Lectionary and this week of the church's calendar year. So we find ourselves back in the gospel of Luke. Aren't we going to be in Luke just for a long time, man? It's the longest of the four gospels. So here we are, Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 38. So let me read that passage, provide a couple points for reflection, and then we'll spend our time praying along the theme that we find there. Thanks for making this part of your morning on When I Rise. Let's allow our souls to rise and meet God together in a time of prayer. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 38. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven, seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is a word of God for us. So this uh, passage comes to a great section of Luke's gospel that one commentary, one scholar said that the controversies in Jerusalem, right? So this is where Jesus has handed all these hot potato issues as he gets closer and closer to the day that he's going to be betrayed by Judas and he's going to be tried and he's going to be left by his disciples and friends and crucified all alone. And so we sense that this story is picking up steam. Um, Everywhere Jesus turns, there's a, a crisis, an issue to deal with. And so here he is, he's handed quite the thorny issue. But here we see maybe the appropriate way that someone of the kingdom reasons with an opponent, right? So they, they being the Sadducees, came to Jesus with this quagmire of a situation. A couple things that we should notice. Number one, this is an extreme example. And I think that's just uh, goes to show that in any human experience, when somebody brings you, brings you an extreme example, it just may be that they really don't want to reason with you. They just want to try to catch you in something or to, I don't know, clobber you in an argument. So it's best to find your way to the exits as quick as possible. But nevertheless, Jesus is here for it. What we got to like about Luke and what the other gospel writers, Matthew and Myrick, who also include the story, they give us this hint right away because we're removed from the situation. 
We don't know who the Sadducees are and how they're different from the Pharisees and even the unmentioned Essenes, another sect that was in uh, Palestine at the time. But Taluk says, they say there is no resurrection. Now, there's this governing question of why. Like, why don't uh, they believe in such a glorious document and such an anticipated hope? The Pharisees did. In fact, there's a funny there's a funny episode in the, uh, the book of Acts where Paul is in trial, just like Jesus, in Jerusalem. And he sees that there are Sadducees and Pharisees in the same crowd. And so he talks about the resurrection of the dead so, they, so that the Pharisees and Sadducees start arguing against one another. And Paul has the limelight off him for a second. But uh, we could see here that they're not really wanting to know the answer to this question. Like they actually just want to see Jesus lured towards an impossible scenario, right? He asked the question like, why don't they believe in resurrection? Well, they don't believe it because they base their theology primarily on the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the, the books of Moses. And in the book of Moses, the books of Moses, there is really no uh, hinting of the afterlife or the resurrection. It doesn't concern itself with those things. In fact, like when Moses dies, um, he just, God buries him. And that seems to be the, the only language that's accessible for what happens when a person dies. So the doctrine of the resurrection that the Pharisees and other uh, Jewish fe- uh, people hold on to comes later in the Old Testament, places like Hosea chapter 6 and the book of Daniel, where there is this promise of vindication from the grave uh, towards the end of the Old Testament consciousness. We also know that like the, the average Sadducee, um, they enjoyed the life in the here and now. Uh, they are the ones who own property. They had uh, positions of power. And the resurrection was a revolutionary do- uh, doctrine. It wasn't just that the dead were raised in some neat miracle, but it was like a reordering of God's whole world, right? So if you go back earlier in Luke's gospel, there's this neat song from Mary when she hears the news that uh, the Savior is going to be born. Uh, she has this song. Uh, we call it the Magnificat officially, where she talks about how like the rulers are going to be pulled from the thrones and God's going to exalt the humble and the poor, right? And that is uh, in in the gravity of what resurrection was. So the Sadducees, not only did they like just not see any evidence for it biblically, they didn't want to see it practically because they had the good life. Like they didn't want their positions of power taken from them. And so they had no incentive to believe in the resurrection. Okay, so herein, like Jesus begins to try to reason with them. And notice how Jesus reasons with them. He doesn't go to some outside source that they would dispute. But Jesus finds evidence from within their cherished documents and scriptures. So he goes to the burning bush story early in the book of Exodus where Moses meets with God and Moses refers to this God of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Those three individuals are long gone by the time of Moses. And so Jesus is saying, even within the books you cherish, you've missed this one thing. You've looked over it, but there's evidence here that even Moses had an expectation of a life in the far beyond a resurrection because he used these types of, of, of he, like this, use this invocation in his prayer, right? And so they're stuck. Like they, were they going to deny their cherished scriptures in order to retain the resurrection? Or were they going to have to change their mind? I think this is an important way to, to reason with folks, uh, particularly in a, what we're calling a post-truth culture where uh, people have their micro-truths and uh, we kind of shout past one another 
Uh, it's got this amazing uh, metaphor about how we uh, try to argue with one another. He says we, we uh, package our beliefs like in a suitcase. And instead of going on a trip with those beliefs, we just uh, try to go to war with one another with our suitcases, hitting each other with uh, the pile of our beliefs. And so what does Jesus do instead of like going outside of of their cherished scriptures, he actually finds the answer within. And I think that's an important way to try to reason with anyone. Um, if it's a political issue, try to reason with them on the terms that they state and try to uh, find somewhere in their in their logic that um, actually supports uh, your perspective. If, if regards to faith, try to find common ground and then start from that point because we get nowhere except for um, a very dangerous and tenuous place when we simply shout past one another and fail to want to show hospitality towards one another by having some common ground. So Jesus seeks the transformation, not just of his friends, but also of these folks who have um, pitted themselves against Jesus. Jesus wants to reason with them. And Luke, in his own way, sees this as a more calm conclusion. If you look at the parallels in Matthew and Mark, it ends a bit more abruptly and uh, with more confrontation. But here Luke says, that uh, the people say, well said teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Like no one wanted to throw him any more hot potatoes. Now they may not have meant this well said teacher, but they but they knew at that moment that they could not contend with Jesus any further on the rhetorical grounds in which they started with, right? And so what does this mean? Um, as Christian people, we bear witness in a multitude of ways. We bear witness with our worship. We bear witness with our ethic. Uh, we bear witness with our practices and our piety, the way in which we live out our faith in practical ways. But we also bear witness with the way in which we reason with one another and we reason with the outside world. I think one of the unfortunate things is that uh, we don't have uh, many towering intellectuals uh, from the Christian perspective who can truly hang with the other towering intellectuals um, in Western life. We used to, uh, there may not be but a handful now, but it has been a rich tradition, the scholastic tradition in the faith. And so as we pray, we need to pray not just for ourselves and how we can uh, calmly reason with our friends who have questions about the Christian faith, but we should be praying for the gift of the spirit of um, someone who can reason with their minds and who can bear witness and who can make what they call an apology and not like, a, I'm sorry, but a, a defense or for a list of adequate and sufficient reasons for someone to begin to engage in the Christian faith. We've got a handful of folks like this, but not many. Imagine the Christian world in the future days to come when there are a generation full of people who with calm hearts and cool heads and with intellectual rigor can bear witness to Jesus. Does that get us all the way there? No, because we have to love God with our, with our head, with our heart and our hands, all three. But we certainly need to be a thinking church, and not thinking in like a snobbish and a bullish church, you know, bully church that tries to clobber people uh, with argumentation and belittle them and to make them feel small, but to stoke the mind, because that stoking of the mind could lead to doxology. Uh, we see this, uh, and I've gone way over time here. We see this towards the very end of that really dense, hard section of Romans, Romans nine through eleven, where Paul, in the middle of it, has this doxology, this the song of praise as he thinks about all these weighty intellectual issues. It leads Paul to worship, and that should be the end of any scholastic uh, endeavor of the Christian faith. 
It doesn't just lead us to dominate. It leads to doxology. It leads to worship and it leads to prayer. So with those things in mind, let's pray to our God this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we hear in the commands of Christ to love God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind and our strength. And we give our minds over to you once again, God, and we thank you that um, you've created the human mind um, and all of its complexities and all of its brilliance. And we can worship with our minds and we can worship with our spirit. And so, God, we thank you for this rich tradition within the Christian tradition of scholasticism uh, where the mind is stoked and it leads to worship. We get to ponder the things of God, the ponder the things of Christian truth and Christian community, and it causes us to be faithful and to sacrifice and to excel in the way of our faith. And so God, we pray for ourselves as we want to bear witness to the world that you would stoke our minds and give us clear-headed reason for why we are worshipers and followers of Jesus. And we do pray for the church, God. We pray that you would raise up a generation of those who with cool heads and with burning hearts can bear witness to Jesus. We pray that they'd be trained in institutions that can help them um, be stoked in their intellectualism. We pray that they'd be placed um, within our world in places where they can get a hearing. And we pray that you give them a great humility, that you give them the virtue of love as they reason so that people could see their love, they can know their words, and they can open up their heads and their hearts to the way of Jesus. So we pray that you would call those folks forth now that they can enrich and strengthen the church, and they can also engage the world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.